0: You're listening to another episode of Carte Blanche, the podcast. All the stories you've come to love on a Sunday night, plus some extra content exclusive to the podcast. Don't forget to follow and subscribe, but for now, enjoy today's episode.
1: Ask any South African, and they will likely have a less than rosy story to tell about the police. Whether it's an officer's general lack of compassion or outright acts of criminality. Chances are, we all have a rather tarnished view on the men and women in blue. So what are South Africans to do when the police force can be trusted to serve and protect? We speak to Ziander Stierman about the sad state of policing and what needs to happen to remedy the general distrust citizens have in the force.
0: We saw you on carte blanche and uh, we recently did an online poll showing about 90% of our viewers don't trust the police.
1: Given our complex history of police in South Africa, is that surprising? Yeah, no, I I mean, I don't think that's surprising. Um, You know, it's it's not even particularly um, out of step with what other polls have shown recently or other opinion polls have shown where, for example, with the Afrobarometer opinion poll of South Africans in 2021, that showed that 76% of South Africans said that they trust the police just a little bit or not at all. I think that's a really high number when you have, you know, three quarters of respondents, or in your case, nine out of ten respondents, all saying that they don't trust the police or so they have very low levels of trust in the police. You know, I think it's with polls as well. It's always very interesting to know when they were conducted, and with the Afrobarometer uh, poll and surveying there. That was conducted in April and May 2021, which then would have been a few weeks before the July unrest last year. So it, we may you know, have even seen a higher number, a higher number than that. I think there just are very, very low levels of trust in the police across the board. Um, and I think that that unfortunately also signals a crisis of confidence in the police, which I also think signals a crisis of legitimacy.
0: Okay, so what are the reasons that
1: South Africans are giving for this mistrust? I think one of the reasons for this, these high levels of mistrust and distrust in the police has to include, uh, you know, the high turnover we've had of national police commissioners. And this goes, you know, all the way back to a decade ago with uh, Ria Peeja, who left the position after the the Matakana massacre. And really, again, under a cloud of suspicion to Humutso Pashane, who was implicated in bribery and corruption uh, charges, uh, and more recently then to Kesha Setole, who was effectively pushed out of the position and suspended by the president. It could have been political machinations, but absolutely, uh, you know, had to do with the fact that he was acting improperly in his position, or at the very least was accused of doing so as, uh, you know, any investigation into him uh, then was never complete. And, you know, you then also have to add Peke uh, himself, uh, you know, who was a former National Police Commissioner, as well, and then uh, removed from the position by then President Jacob Zuma when he had been found to have been tampering in financial matters of the police, building leases, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. was eventually, and I, I should definitely say this, cleared of charges. But all of that really just speaks to the fact that having such a high turnover at the highest level of leadership in the police um, really is an enormous issue that signals again, um, you know, this level of dysfunction within the police that I think is is really difficult to argue against. When you then, on top of that, have these multiple policing failures, you know, from the July unrest itself to the way that uh, police officers act and conduct themselves in public protests, to uh, even the fact that, uh, you know, research from the Institute for Security Studies shows that the ability of the police to solve murders especially – has declined by 38 percent in the last decade. So you really have just so many different, I think, metrics uh, or measures at which the police are failing that it's difficult for ordinary citizens to, you know, trust the police when it becomes very difficult for them to even answer the question, "What are you doing?" Uh, you know, in your job. Yeah, I think it starts at the top,
0: right? Mm-hmm. So stomach in, chest out <laughs> mm-hmm. is, you know, a way that I think South Africans have been dealing with any upset. With regards to these characters, but, you know, I think it starts at the beginning with their training and there are many who believe they aren't well trained.
1: Is that perception wrong or what are you feeling? Yeah, I think it's it's definitely a nuanced, um, you know, position and perception in terms of the fact that uh, you know on the face of it, and really this is uh, I think also very true of of a lot of policy discussions in South Africa. But uh, on the face of it, the police receive an adequate, um, if not quite a quality amount of training, given that they go through what's called the basic development and learning plan that includes. 10 months uh, in residence at a police academy. That then includes another 12 months of workplace experience in a police station and under the supervision of a more senior police officer. And then it also includes two months of assessments, So you're really looking at two years of police training. And in that time, they're meant to really be taken to task. They're trained in the basics of forensics and evidence preservation, taking statements, community policing and other sort of day to day duties. But I think what is a a crucial sort of factor is that a lot of that training can be eroded when police officers enter into station environments that don't hold them accountable for unlawful behavior. Or even just for apathy at their jobs you know when they couldn't care less when somebody comes in to report a a crime or they even turn them away and say uh, you know we don't deal with those matters um, that's too petty of a crime etc etc and i think it is really difficult at the station level given that we have over one thousand one hundred police stations across the country it's very difficult at that level to maintain discipline to maintain a high standard of conduct. And I think what we've seen over the years, again, as, as we were mentioning earlier with all of these issues around police leadership at the top being embroiled in many issues, as well as then morale issues and you know lack of resources or dysfunction in other sort of units, all of that really then sinks down to the, to the station level and it creates a, a situation where even if you are well-trained, there is a lot stacked against, particularly a new and young police officer in terms of being able to, to do their job. And I think that's certainly true for older, you know, more seasoned or even more cynical police officers as well.
0: You know, every year we get the crime stats and we know the outcome before we even told it. The crime stats go up every year. What is going wrong? And how can these faults be addressed?
1: Yeah, I always find it really interesting and very informative uh, you know, to look at both quarterly crime stats as well as annual crime stats. The quarterly crime stats, I think, are more of a, a closer, tighter snapshot in time. That's really when we see, um, frequent changes in trends or when particular there's been, um, I guess a spike in violence or a spike in particular crime in a particular area. The annual crime stats are then super useful for understanding longer term trends as well as big changes or big shift in types of crime or in particular areas or geographies. So for this, I think a really good example is the spike in kidnappings, as well as violence around extortion and criminal gangs, you know, coming into various areas and threatening, I think, particularly small businesses and individual businessmen and businesswomen. You then have to look at all of that, that quantum of information and weigh it up against the fact, uh, you know, as I was saying earlier, that the function of the police is declining. Um, in the same way that the Institute for Security Studies, um, you know, their analysis showed that the police at this point are only solving about 19% of all murders reported to them. Similarly, they're only solving about 17% of all assault cases reported to them. So we have this, as you were saying, this increase, slow and steady creep of higher and higher crime statistics for certain crimes and in certain areas. And at the same time, we have this quite steep decline in the ability of the police to close cases, to investigate them properly, to prepare dockets um, for prosecution. And really, we're we're unfortunately in a kind of confluence or the state where there's a wicked brew of many problems happening all at once.
0: Sure. I mean, the statistics when it comes
1: to prosecuting these crimes successfully Mm. must be such a small percentage. Yeah, if you kind of think of the, the criminal justice system almost as a as a pipeline or as a, a spectrum from left to right, where the police are at the start on the left, and a case moves through the, the criminal justice system in that way. If many of the arrests being conducted or affected in South Africa, and again, this is true from digging deeper into the crime stats, of the roughly 1 million crimes that are reported to the police every year and, and arrests made in connection with those crimes, Many of them are for uh, petty theft or petty um, and small violations. What you then struggle to see is the buildup or the preparation of solid evidence in case dockets to then hand over to the National Prosecuting Authority. When there's a thin level of evidence being presented to the NPA for prosecution and in court, it then becomes that much more difficult uh, for the NPA and for that part of the criminal justice system to secure convictions, uh, you know, where people are guilty. And then you have a really, really low number of people in prison for serious crimes. And then many of them end up in prison for, um, again, petty violations and other such crimes. To this effect, just before the COVID-19 pandemic in early 2020, research showed that about 25% of people in prison in South Africa, or about 40,000 people, were remand detainees. So these are people who you know can't meet basic bail conditions, like not being able to to meet bail set at a thousand rand or lower. Some people didn't have basic ID documents. They may have been foreign nationals who, uh, you know, weren't able to produce legal papers to be in the country. And if you, you think about how that's a chunk or 25% of, of people who are in our prison system. And given then again, the low conviction rates, particularly for more serious crimes, we're really ending up in a, in a state where the problem really does start with the fact the police are not able to really investigate crime, to prepare good dockets. And so to allow the system itself to work the way that it is meant to.
0: Speaking of stats, let's talk about some of the things that you've noted in recent crime stats. What are you most concerned about and what trends
1: have you noticed in uh, recent months? The same thing that I've noticed is certainly what a lot of us have noticed in terms of the rise in, you know, shootings and particularly in gun violence. I think that we saw in the media, especially earlier this year, quite a large spike in the number of those crimes and those are, are not just opportunistic. They're very, very targeted and they're very, very specific. I think that, unfortunately, there was an overemphasis of the fact that some of these shootings and some of this gun violence was in and around taverns, for example. When you zoom out and when you kind of think about it on a more systemic level, what was essentially happening is that small businesses, any small businesses, were being targeted uh, by criminal gangs um, who were essentially trying to force people to pay a protection fee. I think what, what that's incredibly indicative of and, and worrying uh, really for a for larger uh, conversation on crime and safety um, is that even where there are small businesses, particularly in peri-urban areas, particularly in um, many low-income communities where people are able to make some money and, you know, some of these other targets have been uh, spaza shops as well or butcheries uh, or other small businesses. What that then means is that what people invest in a small business and what they try to do in 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 terms of creating a living for themselves and even employment opportunities for other people uh, is then targeted and seized upon um, by these I think very organized uh, you know criminal gangs. Again, some of these gangs you know used AK-47s and other automatic rifles um, that you you know you don't get just anywhere on the street. There's very clearly a, a network um, you know that are, that is allowing these gangs to organize and is allowing them to uh, to intimidate small businesses again with the, with that gun violence we're not uh, the the United States of America with uh, very lax gun laws um it's not uh, easy to to pick up an automatic rifle somewhere um and that's again i think signals um many issues uh you know with with illegal firearms and even the uh, global initiative against tr- uh, transnational and organized crime estimates that there may be as many as 2.3 million uh, illegal firearms in circulation in South Africa and in Southern Africa. That's that's both, I think, something that we're, we're picking up from uh, from crime stats, but also understanding, um, you know, from reporting in the media, um, as well as, as other surrounding uh, circumstances and issues.
0: Now, you've given some of this information and some of your findings to the police. How have they responded to your input?
1: I mean, I think broadly the you know the the police as an institution is a very opaque one not to sound defeatist but it's it's definitely one where you can sort of uh, stand outside the the police headquarters in pretoria and kind of shout into the abyss <laughs> and not not get any response back it is just a really really difficult organisation to uh, influence in many ways um you know it's an incredibly large bureaucracy um the police service employs 186,000 people it's really about trying to or at least let me put it this way, that that my efforts are are a lot more about, uh, you know, trying to influence um, and to add to informed public discourse, uh, you know, around the the police uh, than necessarily trying to convince, uh, you know, this person or that person uh, within the police of of a particular viewpoint. If we're going to change policing, um, and I definitely have a desire to see a very reimagined police service But if we're going to do that, um, then you know I think that's going to take you know kind of political awakening really, uh, with an election coming up in 2024, um, where people understand that uh, or have to understand uh, that just giving the police more money or just uh, giving them a sort of unfettered support isn't going to be enough. Um, You know we have to to demand accountability from the police, but also responsiveness uh, from them. There can't be an organisation that's closed to us or we don't know very much about the police. Um, you know, they have to be a, a much more responsive government uh, department. Now, one of the things that you were saying in your book
0: was that more resources won't necessarily lead to more safety. So what are some of the things that will make the public safer?
1: I think that's a really good question. And, and you know, I, broadly sort of looking at the the police uh, as an institution and, and as a system as we have it now. Um, you know, I think one of the most powerful um, uh, levers that, that we could and should be using is that of accountability. Um, you know, I think the the independent police investigative uh, Directorate or IPID, uh, which is meant to be a watchdog over the police, um is under um and and really uh, constrained uh, in what it can do in terms of addressing police officers' unlawful behavior. We also see it in the number of uh, lawsuits uh, that are filed against the police or civil claims. um and that's everything from you know wrongful detention or assault in in custody all of that comes from a culture of impunity because IPED is put under so much uh, strain, and there's no real um, accountability mechanism uh, for the police. So that's, that's, I think it's a, it's definitely a a longer term project, but the one that I think is, is really crucial in trying to, in trying to turn things around and especially in in terms of making sure that again, the, the system is accountable. So long as it exists, it should be accountable to uh, you know, to the people. I, I think also, an important aspect of, of this uh, are more local, uh, you know, police initiatives. Um, you know, there are multiple news stories uh, that are written different times of the year and from different parts of the country uh, about police stations that close or that lock the door overnight. They're cut off from the community in very many ways. And I think especially um, at a time when, uh, you know, during the night again, when the services of the police are sometimes most needed. And that also just has to do with the fact that, you know, the police have have seen themselves as existing outside of the same communities that they're meant to police and to to operate in. If there was proper cooperation between both police officers and local police leadership and, you know, neighborhood watches, community forums, uh, street committees, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that would both, I think, build some trust and build some some confidence in uh, at least the local police in different communities. And hopefully, I would hope that that would also, uh, you know, foster, again some more confidence in the police where you then don't have uh, incidents of vigilante violence taking place. That's also something that erodes the legitimacy of the police when people feel like they can and should, uh, you know, take the law into their own hands instead of reporting crimes to the police. So there's, you know, I think sort of big and small initiatives uh, or work that needs to be done uh, ultimately to improve the entire system both in in the sort of short term, uh, but also in the long term.
0: You know, you were saying, you were talking about iPad now, Mm -hmm. and a lot of people say iPad no longer has any teeth. And so we get lots of submissions weekly from the public who have horror stories to share with us about their experiences with the police.
1: When South Africans do want to report police abuse, who can they talk to or who can they turn to? I think firstly that it's important not to uh, abandon uh, IPED as an institution that's meant to do its work. As frustrating as it can be, um, I still always encourage people to uh, you know report complaints to IPED. And what I think that's useful for too is keeping you know a systematic and even centralized record um, of complaints against particular police stations or officers in particular police stations or even particular officers themselves, because that's really the only way that you build a case for. Uh, you know, for for somebody needing to be disciplined or someone needing to be uh, completely dismissed uh, from the service. I think still uh, reporting complaints to IPED, um, you know, and, and making sure that you keep any correspondence from IPED uh, when it arrives is, is really, really important for any, any South African who, um, you know, again, encounters a police officer who's acting unlawfully um, or even violently towards them. And then I think the second um, and really quite, uh, influential, uh, you know, mechanism is also that of civil society. Um, you know, there are multiple organizations such as corruption watch, for example, uh, such as the social justice coalition and others that have been working towards, um, you know, police accountability, um, and making sure that they face discipline and face consequences for the things that they do, um, against people. Those are all again, really, really, really important, uh, institutions that in many ways are working you know, together with, with many communities to ensure accountability and, and again, to ensure that there are consequences, uh, you know, for the police. Um, there are also, I think, uh, specific efforts by, for example, the, um, sex workers, uh, education and advocacy, uh, task force or SWET, um, as well as, uh, CIRI, which is the socioeconomic rights institute. Um, and they work with, uh, SWET works with so sex, sex workers in particular. Um, and Siri works with uh, many communities who particularly organize under the banner of Abashalibasamjondolo, uh, which is a, a group, particularly in KZN, that advocates for land and housing rights. And all of them uh, have an aspect of their work that touches on on police accountability. And every single one of those organizations, I think, deserves our support. Absolutely. You've given a lot of advice to people.
0: Thank you for listening. For more episodes, be sure to subscribe to Carte Blanche, the podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. While you're at it, why not rate and review us? We love hearing from our listeners.